Amen. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series on uh, the study of the life of King David, I want to begin by just reminding us of the, the theme of our church, the, the motto that has become so very important, nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships. Ever since uh, the pastoral staff was away five years ago on a retreat and, and started to work on this kind of language and brought it back and worked with the board and then others in our church, uh, that, this... this um, this saying has become so very important. I'm convinced of the worth of, and the truth of this, this statement that nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships is what we're all about. We defined those relationships in four ways. We defined them in families, like our nuclear families that we live in, in the church family that we're part of, in the community that we live in, and in the cross-cultural connections that we are given by God. And in those four relationships, we believe that if we focus on healthy relationships, that's the best environment, that's the best context where disciples of Jesus Christ are made. And to the degree that we fall down in our family life, in our church life, in our community life, and in our cross-cultural interactions, to the degree that we don't develop healthy there, that, to that degree, we are anemic or lessened in our ability to make disciples. Um, that, that's just the way it is. And so we are committed to this. And this morning as we talk about, about uh, David, we're going to be talking about one of those relationships specifically, and that is the local, the, 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 the nuclear family. So we're going to be talking about family life this morning. And um, I looked up the definition of dysfunctional family this past week, and several elaborate and very clinical definitions. One of them that most healthcare professionals define as a dysfunctional family is one where the relationships among family members are not conducive to emotional and physical health. Talk about vague language, right? And the thing I liked about it, though, was the fact that it uses two of the key words about healthy and relationship. And uh, that's the reality, is that healthy relationship is something that um, none of us are perfect at. And in fact, all of our families are dysfunctional in some way. Uh, usually you come to sort of realize that in your teenage years, don't you? <laughs> you start to realize that, oh, ooh, this is my family. And uh, by the time you get to be a young adult, maybe you're starting to say, well, they're not so bad, I guess. Let me just share with you a little bit of humor before we get into a rather serious sermon. So, I actually know of someone in our church that has this hanging on their wall. It says, remember, as far as everyone knows, we are a nice, normal family. <laughs> our, put, our family puts the fun in dysfunctional. That's good. Here's one. It says, someone stole my identity yesterday. They returned it to me after spending 24 hours with my family. Someone sound familiar? Here's one. Let's have a family gathering for the remaining family members who still speak to each other. Two men speaking over the wall say, let's reconnect over Thanksgiving to awkwardly discuss why we only reconnect over Thanksgiving. And uh, here's the Christmas card. It says, every family has one weird relative. If you don't know who it is, it's probably you. And here's a nice way to end this. I can, can't think of anyone I'd rather be in a dysfunctional relationship with. Amen? How's that for mushy? 
That's good. Well, there's a, a, a psychologist by the name of Elvira Aletta, and she has given us uh, a bunch of things of what a functional family looks like. So here's a, here's a list. You can do some little thinking on comparing of your family. A functional family, the first word is respect for one another. A secondly, is that it's an emotionally safe place to be. Uh, thirdly, it's, a res- it's got a resilient foundation under that. She talks about things like uh, how, what you eat and how much you sleep and physically exercise and stuff. Uh, privacy is an important thing in functional families. That's privacy of body, privacy of space, privacy of thinking. Accountability, this idea that, yeah, it's important that you tell someone where you're going and where and when and, and what time you'll be home. This apology factor is very important. Functional families do come into problems. They need to apologize. They're not too proud to do so. Expressions of emotion from the the highest to the lowest are also permissive in functional families. They're very gentle on teasing, she writes, especially the sarcasm piece. Very gentle on teasing because words wound. She talks about allowing people to change in a family, that functional families permit that. Parents work as a team in functional families, and uh, there's courtesy, courtesy of sorries and pleas and, poly- and uh, thank yous. Siblings work together as well, and parents know when to let them alone to work out their issues and when to intervene. There's clear boundaries usually in functional families of uh, who's a parent and who's not. Parents take leadership. They're not friends of their children. They're parents of their children. They get each other's, uh, they've got each other's backs. You can always know that your family is going to be in your corner, come what may. There's a sense of humor that a family enjoys that nobody else will get. There's inside jokes and there's lots of laughter at dinner tables. And that's another one, they eat meals together. And that's what our theme is on December 5th, to put in a little plug. If you haven't signed up, we're about half full, but uh, there's more room. The importance of family meals together. She says, she, she quotes studies that have been done to describe that the importance of eating meals together. And then finally, she talks about the golden rule, that I will treat you the way I want you to treat me. Well, if you were to take King David and stack up this roster of, of qualities of functional families, you would find that David's family is rather dysfunctional. And so we're going to talk about that today. And uh, it's, it's, it's not pretty. And so let's take a look at some of the scripture that we're going to be talking about. Last week, uh, we talked about the sin of David with Bathsheba, the sin of covering up the sin that he had committed, adultery. We talked about the fact that David, because he did not practice good vulnerability, he was wide open to bad vulnerability. Today we're going to talk about another word that has two meanings. We're going to talk about the word brokenness and the fact that brokenness has two meanings as well. There's a good meaning of brokenness in uh, Psalm 51, 17. David writes that a uh, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is talking about a soft heart before God, a teachable, humble heart a clean heart before God. But there's also a brokenness that is, that is uh, not, not, not good. It's, it's the brokenness of sin. And we all experience that. We all have experienced the brokenness of sin. We're all broken 
image bearers. We've been created in the image of God with incredible worth and potential, but we have all been broken and marred by sin. And so we, we grow up in these families that, that it just kind of sometimes aggravates our brokenness. And, and then we get old enough and we actually, we, we find somebody and we unite our brokenness to their brokenness. And so two individuals looking for completeness find each other's brokenness, and we, we call that marriage, for better or for worse. And then we, as, as married couples, we have children, and we invite them into this brokenness that is more complex because it's adding more people with each child that's born. Now, that's, that's a picture of the average family, but David's family was not an average family. In fact, compounded David's family, he didn't just marry once. He married several times. He had other concubines where he was having children with. And multiplying the complexity, it, it caused exponential conflict among the household of David with the large group of broken half-brother and half-sister relationships and with the many mothers that were in his house and at his table every evening. There, this was never God's plan. It was never God's intent in David's life. We spoke about that last week. And there were consequences to David's sin, not just this sin of adultery and murder that he committed, but this sin of having compounded so much in his home of the different women and the different children that were born to them, those women. And so today's, today's message really kind of walks into the living room of David's dysfunctional family life, and we're, we're going to unpack some things that are uncomfortable. And so we start with understanding that we all, in some way, have the taste in our mouth of a dysfunctional family. We all can identify with different factors. And be careful that you do not somehow dismiss David as nothing you can learn from him because you haven't sinned the way that he's sinned. Do not do that because there's something of the spirit of David in each of us, whether it be the, the anger enough to kill, the, the lust enough to commit adultery, and so on. And so we're going to look at a very large portion of Scripture this morning, but I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to begin with just where some of the unraveling starts in David's family. In chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, and uh, chapter 13, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Could you stand with me if you're able to and listen to the Word of God as I read it to us? In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated at the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to have anything to do with her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, and David's brother Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David went to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. 
And so Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. And so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. May God bless his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Amnon is David's oldest son, the firstborn, the heir to the throne, though we know from the scriptures that it's going to be Solomon that follows David as king. And had Amnon wanted any other girl in the kingdom, he might have done as his father did with Bathsheba, sent someone for her and brought her, get her brought to him. But Tamar is a half-sister and a princess at that, not only because she is David's daughter, but because her mother, Maka, a princess from the royal house of Talmai, is from a nearby Aramean kingdom, and so she is twice a princess, both from father and mother. We can only speculate that David was a very poor father at this stage of his life, having so many children from so many wives and concubines and kingdom issues to deal with. He is close to 60 years of age at this time. And though his sin with Bathsheba had been years prior and the sin had been forgiven after he repented, the consequences to that sin yet live on in him, for he is out of control, especially with his adult children. We don't know how old Amnon was when David sinned with Bathsheba, but obviously it had left its mark on him. It appears that he saw his father as having got away with something and didn't see, see why he couldn't as well. But this whole story is especially disturbing because after Tamar's incestuous rape, there is a hush that settles over the entire Davidic kingdom. It's not talked about. It's not dealt with. We read in verse 20 that 
Tamar's blood brother Absalom comforts her with the words, be quiet now, my sister, he is your brother. The word be quiet in Hebrew literally means be silent, hold your peace, do not speak of this. Though everyone knew what had happened and that her shame would likely mean she would not likely marry this little dirty family secret that everybody seemed to know about anyway meant that she had to go about things in shame and guilt. Couldn't be talked about. The festivals continued. The king's table was full every evening. The family just never talked about it. But for Tamar, life would never be the same. This story must resonate with many women in particular who have faced sexual abuse, perhaps even at the hands of someone they trusted and have been forced into a vow of silence. It's not unlike a parallel to this story being shown and showcased in the movie this weekend that we saw called Spotlight, the Boston Globe several years ago, doing investigation and publishing the names of priests in the area of Boston that had been involved in abuse towards children. And the goal of that research was, what were the authorities doing in the church at the time? And that's the question that the reader is asking of the text in this passage of the Scripture. It is, what is the authority of the household of David doing at this time? Where is David What is David doing? We see in the scripture in verse 21, he's furious. But what does he do? The Bible says nothing. It says in verse 22, Absalom, it doesn't say a word to Amnon, either good or bad, but he hates Amnon because he disgraced his sister. And again, I ask, where's David? Where's the father of this home? Why has he not stepped into the crisis, made his presence known, spoken in some word of discipline or judgment or comfort or whatever it is that the family needed. You can see from verse 23 that two years go by and David has done nothing. I want to pause for a moment just to say this, that God really does hold fathers responsible for family health more than anybody else in the family. And it is not enough to do nothing when a crisis comes. Nothing is never enough. There's always something that a father can do. Even of adult children, there's always something that a father can do to insert his presence, to remind the family of values, even if the matter cannot be directly addressed in a public way with the family, there is always something that a father can do. Well, besides dirty family secrets, this dysfunctional nature of David's household also is seen in his inability to administer discipline as a father. And as furious as he is, he does nothing to correct the matter. If the matter was not going to be dealt with horizontally, you see, the problem was going to be dealt with laterally. This is exactly what we see with David. 
If David, as the rightful God-ordained authority in the household of David, is not going to deal with it, if it's not going to be dealt with in the right way, it's going to be dealt with in the wrong way. And we see that not only in local families, but in the church and in politics and in all kinds of institutions where the, the, the vacancy of, of God-ordained authority is left and, and somehow the issues start to get resolved, but in an unholy way. In this case, Absalom just let a bitter root of hatred grow against his son, his brother Amnon, because his father was doing nothing. We see this come to fruition as in verse 21, 23, two years later, the sheep shearer's annual event is taking place and Absalom goes to his father and asks for the family to go along, all of his siblings. David thinks that maybe this time has passed, that two years have gone by and maybe the brothers can be together now and so he permits the whole family to go and in this very event, he, he commits, Absalom commits premeditated murder just like his father had done with Uriah several years earlier, and he kills Amnon. He has Amnon killed, and, uh, and, and the whole thing just unravels. Once again, we see David's former sin of murder debilitating him from being able to speak into the murder of his son, so he doesn't say anything to Absalom. Just like he had said nothing to Amnon, he says nothing to Absalom. And we read in the scriptures that Absalom flees 80 miles northeast for three years. And uh, David comes home with his, or David returns to the palace and he's weeping bitterly, it says, verse 36. Surely there's no grief such as the grief that David felt, not just the grief of losing a son but knowing that it was at the hands of another son. And as gut-wrenching as this is, we see again the difficulty that it's David's debilitating sin that has caused him to do nothing. It's, it's his prior sin of adultery and of murder that causes him to not speak into adulterous or murderous affairs in his own household. If it were not for Joab interceding, Absalom might have finished his days in a far-off land. In chapter 14, we read an interesting story how Joab asks a woman to create a fictitious story and go to the king and ask for resolve. And so this woman comes to King David, and she says to him, I had two sons, and my sons got into a fight, and one of them killed the other, and now the rest of the family is asking that for justice to be done, my other son must die. Please, king, have mercy on me. And it catches the, the, the father heart of David. And so David responds by assuring in his kingdom that nothing on the hair of that son's head of this woman will be touched. And then as soon as he pronounces his judgment from on high, the woman turns the story around. And you'll notice in chapter 14, verse 13, she confronts David. And she says, when the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. And so the whole story, just like the story of Nathan several years earlier, catches David in his, in his duplicity. And so David talks to Joab, Joab talks to Absalom, 
And Absalom, after three years, is returned to Jerusalem. But we read in chapter 14, verse 24, that David is not allowed, Absalom is not allowed to see his father's face. So now he's living back in Jerusalem, but he's still in exile. He's still in banished. He's still uh, guilt-ridden. He's still under his father's wrath as far as he knows. As far as Absalom knows, at this stage of the game, his father despises him. Even though the scripture tells us that David longed for Absalom every day. You see, David is so very conflicted, so very angry at his son, and yet so very longing for his son. And so a bitter root begins to grow in Absalom's heart, this anger, this rage, this hatred. And we read in the Bible that for two more years, Absalom does not see his father's face. Now it's five years. Finally, a meeting is organized through a coercive, deceptive act of Absalom just to try and have a hearing with his father. And it's arranged, and its, it's insincerity is, is so blatantly clear that his father still despises him. David's so conflicted, he doesn't know what to do. And so, so Absalom leaves his father's courtroom, and he determines that he is going to take, take the kingdom from David. I think that in this case... Probably Absalom at this stage of the game would have preferred lashes or imprisonment or anything else compared to the rejection that he was facing. I, I, I've spoken with Pastor Alf Bell, who spent most of his career as a prison chaplain, and Pat and I did prison ministry when we were in the East Coast. And I know, even talking to some of the inmates, there, there's, there's many men that would rather face any kind of, of abuse from father than, than absolute rejection and nothing. I don't know, I can't, I can't confirm this, but many years ago I remember hearing that, that, that Hallmark cards in a certain area would, would give free cards to the, to the prisoners in, in these penitentiaries on special occasions like Father's Day and Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, Everybody wanted cards. On Father's Day, nobody wanted cards. There's something about this father-son relationship that when it's dysfunctional, it is very, very destructive. And so we see in chapter 15 that Absalom begins to develop a conspiracy. Because his father is not providing for him in any way, Absalom provides for himself. He gives himself a chariot, he's got horses, he's got men, bodyguards. He goes to the city gates every day, and for four years more, he's campaigning like a political uh, opposition leader. And he's saying, if I was judge here, if I was king here, if... And finally, at the end of four years, with a passive father, David at this stage of his life is an absentee father, an uninvolved closet king. And by the time four years has passed, a scheme is developed and Absalom's conspiracy is found in chapter 15. He's got enough freedom to develop his own plans. And so one day he comes to his father and he says, Dad, I, I made a vow that I'd go to Hebron and fulfill it now. Would you let me go? And he, so he goes, but it's all a deceit. He's only going to, to be crowned king. So David, Absalom is, is crowned king in chapter 15. We see it. And in verse 13, we read about David hearing the message that 
that Absalom has been crowned king and he's on his way to Jerusalem to take the throne. And in the very next verse, verse 14, what do we see David doing? Do we see him rallying the troops to fight back? No. He packs his bags and he's out the, day, uh, the gate, the very next verse. And, and we as readers of this story are left asking ourselves, what's the hurry, David? What are you doing? What's wrong? You're still God's anointed man. You're still God's king. What are you doing running from your rebellious son? And so that's the last point that I want to talk about is that this sin of David's that has been unresolved in his heart and mind leads him to have such trouble discerning the leading of God that even in this moment, he makes some big, big errors. I think the reason that David is so quick to pack his bags is because he was still living in this insecurity of forgiven sin that had been unresolved in his own heart and he had been living with some consequences. And because he'd been living with the consequences of his sin, he misinterpreted what God was saying as if God was still angry with him, even though it just was the consequences of, of living sinfully. His sin had resulted in dirty family secrets and disabled fatherly discipline and deceitful schemes, but it also resulted in the inability to discern God's leading. Look at chapter 15 and verse 25. They're fleeing from Jerusalem. David talks to the priest Zadok, and he says to him, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me dwell in and see it again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, David, then I am ready. Let him do whatever he seems good to him. You see, in, in those very words, we hear such insecurity. He says, if, if God says, I'm not pleased with you, doubt is filling his mind. In chapter 16, we read about this exit from Jerusalem, and we, we see that the whole country seems to be lining the streets, the, the roads outside of Jerusalem, watching David and his men, his loyal subjects, walk by. And he meets up with a follower from the, or someone that's from the tribe of Saul, the former king. And this gentleman just despises David, and he's, he's walking on the bank along above the road. You can just picture this in your mind. And he's not just hurling insults, he's literally throwing stones down on David and his men. One of his men says, shall I go up there and kill him, this dead dog? And David says, no. Look what he says, chapter 16, verse 10. What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David. Who can ask, why do you do this? Verse 11, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will say, see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing that I'm receiving today. Do you hear this twisted thinking that's going on in David's head? Thinking that that's the kind of God that David worships? The, the God that is that is so, so, so ready for a pound of flesh because of David's mess-ups that he, he's going to make him pay through some pain. David is very twisted in his thinking. It's one thing to leave your life in God's hands and trust Him with the outcome, but it's quite another to think that somehow taking a beating will be payment for sin and somehow predispose God to show favor. I want you to see in the text 
that God did not forgive David half-heartedly the way that David forgave Absalom half-heartedly. But that was, that was the reference point that David had. You see, David had his own heart as a reference point instead of God's heart. God did not say to David, well, I'll forgive you, but we will not have a close relationship anymore. You will not see my face. That's not God's forgiveness. God did not say to David, okay, I'll forgive you, but let's see how you perform in the coming days. God did not say to David, okay, I'll forgive you, but you're going to have to suffer a little because of this because you really, really messed up. Then I'll be nice to you. That's the way David was treating his son Absalom. God does not disappear as a reclusive father when we have sinned. He does not give us the cold shoulder. His will is always to have his children restored and close to him. God the Father is not a dysfunctional father, friends. Whatever your father might have been like, God is not like him. We see in David's family a dysfunctional family, not talking with each other, running away from problems, deceiving and being deceived, not addressing family issues together, not disciplining sin when it's appropriate to discipline, not apologizing when you've wronged someone, not forgiving. And the list goes on in this dysfunctional family. Our sin and our guilt causes us to flee from God as well. We know what it's like to feel far from God and we're banished from His sight. But contrary to David, God wants us by His side just like David longed every day for Absalom, God the Father longs for you and I, especially when we have wandered away from him. He longs for us, and he draws us near, and when we get near, he doesn't just give us the cold shoulder. He loves us. His love is like his love for Jesus Christ. That's his love for you. Because when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took whatever unforgiveness or cursing or judgment of sin would be upon you otherwise, and he, he bore that sin in Jesus' body on the tree. And now when he looks at you and he looks at me, he just says, come close. I want you close. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a bo broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Again, I want to remind you as we conclude that we must not think that we cannot learn from David simply because maybe we have in outward terms not been guilty of the sins that David was guilty of. Jesus is very clear in his Sermon on the Mount that even if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And even if you were so angry with your brother to say, Raka, you fool, you're guilty of the sin of murder. You're, this idea is that the spirit of lust or the spirit of anger, of hatred and of murder exists in you and I. We're capable of the same things. And we come before God with a broken spirit and a broken heart, and we say, oh, God, if it were not for your grace in my life, I would be guilty like that. Let's come before God right now, and let's ask him to do that very thing. Let's pray together. 
Mighty God, we, we pray just as we are, oh God, we pray that you might meet us. Lord, I, I, can't, I can't possibly know all the situations that are in this room today. I can't possibly know the, the dirty family secrets that, are, that we all bring into this place. Oh God, but we need you. We do, we do need you to speak into those situations like a good father always does. And Lord, we pray that you might meet each person here and all the dysfunctionality of, of us individually and, and in fa family terms. Lord, we just, just receive us today as we lift up to you all of our cares. And uh, Lord, we trust you to meet us. Help us not to confuse things as David did, but to be the, the kind of people that trust in your grace and in your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.